Well, thank you. Be seated. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue in this series of messages that I began last week on attitudes for church growth. And last week we looked at Acts 1, 1 to 14, and we talked about an attitude of expectancy. And in this passage in verse 4, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, they didn't really understand what this meant, and we see this in verse 6, when they asked Jesus if he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time, because this is what they still expected. This is what, in their mind, the Messiah was going to do. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, they expected the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and since he had died and had been buried and was raised to new life, and had now made this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were more certain than ever that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom. But in verse 8, Jesus said that God's plan was not for the restoration of a physical Israel, but for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out among all believers for a very singular purpose, so that they would become his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the world. After Jesus said this to his disciples, he ascended back into heaven for the final time. It was the permanent removal of his physical presence from this earth until he comes again. And when he comes again, he will establish his earthly physical rule. So upon hearing this, the disciples left where they were and went back to Jerusalem. And they went to the upper room. And while they were waiting For the Father's promise to be fulfilled, they joined their hearts together in prayer. So Acts chapter 1 concludes with the disciples replacing Judas the betrayer with another follower who would take his place, and that position fell to Matthias. And then Acts chapter 2 begins with the day of Pentecost. Now the day of Pentecost is one of three national feasts that that are observed by the Jews in Jerusalem. And Jews from all over the world were going to travel back to Jerusalem for this feast. Now, the Feast of Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of Passover. So it's more than likely that the disciples were in the upper room and they were preparing themselves and waiting and praying expectantly for nearly 10 days before the day of Pentecost was going to come. Now, I'm sure they went out and did other things, but the point here is they focused their preparation on the upper room and they began to pray. So, the Father pours out His Spirit upon the believing community that is gathered in that upper room and the people who are outside that building hear the sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's as if there's a tornado taking place in the upper room, but nothing is disturbed, nothing is destroyed, and people from all over the area can hear what's going on, and they know that something is taking place. So let's read verses 2 through 11 as just a ramp up to what we're going to look at in just a few moments. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they they were sitting. 
And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fergie and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And so God has poured out his spirit upon this believing community and these Galileans who had probably never left the region of Judea are now speaking in tongues and languages that they likely had never ever heard before. And what are they doing? They're speaking of the mighty deeds of God and they are giving evidence of the gospel message so that they can do exactly what the power of the Spirit has enabled them to do, to be His witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. This is an incredibly powerful experience and it is quite rare. I actually met a missionary who was in a church one time and he told me when he was overseas and he was preaching to a national group, he did not know their language and he had a translator translator over on his side and out of this peripheral vision, he could see the translator making all of the signs and as he was in the spirit, he began to notice the translator was no longer translating and he stopped and he said, why are you not translating? And he said, because I can hear you in my own language. You see, God wants the gospel message to go to the remotest parts of the world. And I want to tell you, my friend, that includes Chester County, Pennsylvania. And it doesn't take someone coming into our midst who has been empowered to speak a language he does not know in order to communicate that message. You and I and the believing community around us are called to be his witnesses in our own little Jerusalem. Well, after this amazing experience of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, giving this believing community the ability to speak in a language they never had ever trained, Peter then stands and preaches his very first sermon. And in this message, he explains how Jesus was in fact the Messiah and how he had fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And the result, according to Acts 2.41, is that 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people in one preaching message were saved. This group of 120 had now multiplied exponentially. The most important event in the book of Acts, the fulfilled promise of the Father, is the Holy Spirit given freely to all who believe in Jesus as a Messiah, which enables all believers to be witnesses for Him. And my friend, you make no mistake about it, the world will never be the same. In fact, it would say in the book of Acts that these men turned the world upside down. How do they do that? 
simply by sharing the truth of the gospel message. The disciples waiting and praying with great expectancy in the upper room have been filled with and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This brings us to our second attitude for church growth, and that is an attitude of fellowship. The fellowship of believers is one of the most special and blessed aspects of our union with Christ. And for the purpose of this message, fellowship is defined according to the Greek word koinonia, which means to have a close relationship or to have communion with. This is what fellowship means. Fellowship is to enjoy this close relationship, this close sense of communion with another individual. The Bible tells us that we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. 1 John 1, 3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We also have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And as a result of our union with Christ, because you and I have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship with one another. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. Now, what John would say here is that if you are truly united with Christ, we are going to walk in the light as he is in the light, and in doing so, we have fellowship with one another. Our fellowship with one another is based upon our salvation. It's based upon our union with Christ. Think about this. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what our strengths or our weaknesses, our ability to contribute or our need for help, we are brothers and sisters in Christ joined together for all eternity as the singular body of Christ. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity through our union with Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, this is a blessing that far too many neglect and take for granted. There's a story of a pastor who visited with an individual who he encouraged to become more faithful in the church. And it's through this conversation that the individual begins to communicate with the pastor that he believes that he can live his Christian life just fine all by himself. And as they're having this conversation and as they are gathered around the, around the fire, the pastor gets this impression from the spirit to go to the fire with a set of tongs to take out one of these red hot coals and to set it on the stone hearth next to the fireplace. And as they begin to talk and continue their conversation, it becomes very apparent that this once red hot coal, after, after just a few moments, has begun to turn gray. It has begun to ashen over and it's lost its heat and its intensity. The pastor makes note of this change to the red-hot coal. He then takes the red, the gray coal and he puts it back into the fire. And after just a couple of minutes, this hardened over ashen coal has now once again begun to glow red-hot. 
Well, the illustration being complete, the plaster explained that Christians who stand alone generally lose their intensity and they begin to cool off and their desire to walk with Christ and to serve him. But Christians who stay connected to other believers in fellowship have a greater likelihood of maintaining their intensity for the Lord. Now, our salvation is not based upon how regularly we attend. Our salvation, God's love for us, is not dependent upon how closely connected we stay in fellowship with one another. But the principle is this. God created us, his body, to be in community together. And when we're in community together, we will serve him more faithfully. I don't know if there's ever been a time in your life when you were not very consistent in your walk with God. Did something change? Did your God consciousness seem to dissipate? Did your desire for holiness and godly things seem to be drowned out by all the world has to offer? Did the idea of going back to church or reading your Bible or going to the Lord in prayer seem to wane? It's kind of like sitting on the couch for months and months and months, the desire and the interest to go to the gym or to get on the treadmill or to get up and get going gets harder and harder with each passing week. And that's exactly what can happen to us spiritually. The less connected we are to other believers, the more likely it is that we're going to lose our intensity for Christ. Now, we've seen in Acts 2.41 that these 3,000 souls were saved, and now we're going to look at our focal passage today, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. So read along with me. Speaking of these 3,000 souls, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we're going to look at our passage of scripture in three very simple points. Number one, we're going to see a fellowship of commitment. Verse 42, they, speaking of this newly believing community, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, the reason we know this is speaking of this newly believing community is because they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That gives us a clue as to who it's talking about in this single verse. So there's two primary commitments that are expressed here in verse 42. The first one is the commitment to discipleship. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So at this point, 10 days after Jesus ascended, the day and the days following of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit... 
They had the Old Testament teaching. That was all they had. The apostles were teaching this newly believing community how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding the the Messiah. They were teaching what Jesus had taught them. The apostles were teaching and preaching as the Holy Spirit inspired them. And this teaching that was begun with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is what some 30 and 40 years later would be penned and then included in our New Testament. What we have in our hands today was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was begun in the early days of the church as the newly believing community was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So it's very important here, and it is, a, it is my belief that discipleship, which is the spiritual growth of God's people, becomes central to the church's ministries and to its activities. After all, if you have a group of people who are not growing and maturing in their faith, what is going to happen to the ministry of evangelism. When a new person comes into the church, how are they going to grow in the relationship with the Lord? Our devotion to the teachings of the Bible must be central to who we are and what we do as the church and as individual Christians. So there are three keys to discipleship, and we've reviewed this in the past. The first key to discipleship is this. Discipleship is to be systematic. When we say discipleship is systematic, it means that we teach intentionally. We teach the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Jesus, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of man, etc., etc. We teach the spiritual disciplines that help believers learn what it means to walk with Christ on a daily basis. It isn't just a haphazard Bible study, but it is intentional and it is systematic. Letter B, it is also relational. It isn't just to be a bunch of academic information. It isn't just names and dates and places and individual truths. It is relationship. It is you and I in a spiritual relationship together growing in our relationship with the Lord as we submit ourselves to the authority and to the truth of God's word. Let us see this discipleship process is transferable. It means in the same way that I have been discipled, I would be able to disciple someone else. If you have been discipled, then you have the ability and you actually have the obligation to pass your faith and your education, if you will, on to somebody else who is not as far along as you are. So not only was the early church committed to discipleship, the second commitment they had was fellowship. And fellowship is relationship. Remember, fellowship means relationship and communion. And so their commitment was to, to fellowship was a commitment to relationship. The commitment was to having a spiritual relationship with the people that they worship with. Having a relationship doesn't mean that I know your name and I know what you do for a living and I know you've got some kids in your house and I think I heard something about somebody in your family that was sick or something like that. You see, that's not relationship. Relationship is you know my strengths, you know my weaknesses, you know my failures, you know my faults. 
You become one of the things that God uses in my life to spur me on in my relationship with God. Iron sharpening iron where there's friction and there's growth. This is what relationship really means. This is what fellowship is all about. Fellowship in our culture is a catchphrase that means we're going to sit around a table, we're going to eat some food together, and we're going to talk about what's going on in the world around us. But biblical fellowship means something different. In Acts 2.42, fellowship is followed by the words, the breaking of bread and prayer, and it indicates that this is, in fact, a spiritual relationship. Many of the commentators believe that the breaking of bread is a reference to the act of communion that Jesus inaugurated in the upper room before he was crucified. Remember, he broke the bread and passed it around. He took the cup and passed it around. So most believe that the reference here to breaking of bread is actually a commemoration of the Lord's Supper. So their meal gatherings, excuse me, so this fellowship is now based upon their union with Christ and these gatherings of breaking of bread and a prayer were likely remembrances of the Lord's Supper and they prayed for one another and they prayed for the work of the kingdom. So fellowship was not talking about the local sports team or current events or the grandkids or the new gadget or the vacation we just got back from. It's talking about what the Lord is doing in my life. Here's the bottom line. You and I are built by God to be in community, and whether we're willing to acknowledge it or not, we need each other. You know, there's more than 50 verses in the Bible that talk about the one another's. Love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, rejoice with one another, weep with one another. We're designed to be in community. And here's what I want to share with you. The sociological implications of this COVID period that we're still in are yet to be realized, but there's already indications that there are very alarming trends within the mental health industry because people no longer have relationship. They're no longer gathering with people at work, and they're being told, you can't go to church, and they're being told, have your school in your home. People aren't built to live alone. They're built to live in community, and so as you and I live our lives in this period of COVID pandemic, we have an opportunity to bring other people into this drastic community need they have by letting them know we're having church. We're worshiping together on a weekly basis. We'd love to have you come and be with us. Do you know anybody who has said, my church isn't open? Do you know anybody who has said, our church is only live streaming? Do you know anybody who has said, I don't know what's going on in the lives of the people that I used to be around because I don't ever see them anymore? You know what happens? Out of sight, out of mind. And this is the problem that we have in our society right now is that people need community.
connection and this ability to connect has been cut off. And so we have a chance to help other people make a meaningful and a viable connection in their life. And while we're doing that, we can encourage them in their walk with the Lord. We can build relationships and help each other live out this life for Christ in a way that matches our spirit-given desires. The stronger the church becomes relationally, the greater the experience of unity and mission and purpose will become in our lives individually and corporately. Let me say that again. The stronger the church becomes relationally, the greater the experience of unity and mission and purpose that we will be that, that we will experience in our lives individually and corporately. You know, Lone Ranger Christians don't do very well. A church that doesn't have a sense of unity and purpose and mission is not going to be very effective. So we really need to emphasize the importance of being committed to discipleship and to fellowship. Now we see the result of impact from this group in Acts 2.42 that has just been brought into the kingdom of God. And we see in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So the people were feeling a sense of awe. And in the very strict sense of that word, it refers to fear or holy terror related to the sense of divine presence. It relates to the attitude of reverence. It describes the feeling produced when people realize that God is in their midst and God is at work. I don't know if you've ever been in a worship service. I don't know if you've ever been in your private prayer closet and you sense the presence of God in such a way that it was almost as if you could reach out and physically touch God himself. Have you ever experienced that? It's one you will not forget. And when our church comes to de- comes together and we have this shared commitment to discipleship and to relationship and we're doing what God has called us to do through his word, there ought to be a sense of reverence in our midst, because we know that God is here. God is here. He promised us that if two or three gather in my name, I will be in your midst. It is just an absolute tragedy that people can come into God's house and sing a few songs and hear somebody speak from the Bible, and they walk out and they go, wow, that was kind of interesting. I could think of a lot of other things I would have preferred to do with that last 60 minutes of my life, but hey, I'm checking it off my list, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Even if the songs aren't your favorite, and even if the worship or the, the preaching is a little bit dull, because of your individual connection with Christ, you ought to be able to leave this place and say, God, thank you for what you've done for me through the truth of your word that I'd heard. It could have been better. It could have been shorter. It could have been more articulate. But I nonetheless know these truths about who you are and what you've done for me. So I am glad to have been in the house of the Lord because I know you were there with me. What do you think these people in the early church were talking about when they were out and about in the little world that they lived in? What do you think was prevalent 
in their conversation. They were talking about what God was doing, how they sensed his working, and how they sensed his powerful presence in their midst. The fellowship of commitment expressed through discipleship and biblical fellowship produces a God-inspiring result among the people, which undoubtedly spread into the community. Number two in our outline, there's a fellowship of possessions. Verses 44 and 45, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So this fellowship of possession was sharing with all. Remember that fellowship has this idea of relationship, and so they experienced this relational sense of possession in their midst. When you understand that fellowship means relationship and it indicates a relational environment, it makes sense that this believing community that was just birthed and in the immediacy of the days of that birth were more than willing to share their possessions with others who had a need. There was an incredible sense of of unity within this burgeoning body of new believers And the belief was that what was good for the group was good for the individual. What was good for the individual was also good for the group. You know, we kind of have this popular opinion mentality is that, well, that thing may not be good for the majority of the people, so we can't do that. And everything gets set up as if it's a win-lose situation, when in fact we ought to do everything we possibly can do so that the situations we're in are a win-win situation. Well, this may not be what I thought, this may not be what I prefer, but I think this is something we need to do because it's for the good of that individual. Now, of course, there's boundaries and, and balances on all those kinds of things. But the need of this new enormous group was, be, was being met through the material sacrifices of the group as a whole. This wasn't communism, it wasn't socialism, it wasn't communal living. Part of what we don't recognize is that a Jewish community is usually very tight-knit. And if you, as a member of this Jewish community, were baptized into fellowship with the believers of Christ as the Messiah, it was most likely that you would be cut off and excommunicated from this tight-knit Jewish community. And if you had a marketplace, people would likely not shop there. And if you had crops or goods to sell, people may not be willing to buy them because you were now an outsider. So there's a very likely possibility here that there was an, ex- an extraordinary need because the people could no, no longer make a living. They could no, no longer sell their stuff. Nobody was buying their stuff. And so they had immense need, and this immense need was now being met by the church. The sharing of possessions is an important component in the life of the church. I looked as I was preparing for this, the most current statistics indicate that the average Christian contributes 2.5% of his income. Now, as a comparison, during the 1930s, the period of the Great Depression, the average Christian contributed 3.3% 
of his income. Think about that. The most economically oppressed period in the history of this country outpaces the statistics that are the most current and the most productive and prosperous nation that has ever been around. Even in the period of the pandemic, the gross national product is still sufficient enough for Christians to do more than what was done during the Great Depression. Giving is a reflection of our spirituality. In fact, there's a, it just occurred to me, I don't remember the reference, but there's a verse where Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching about giving. He's teaching about the worshipfulness of giving. And he says, if you have something against your brother, leave your offering and go make it right, then give your offering to the Lord. Why? Because giving is a reflection of our spirituality. Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For many, the love of these physical material things that are so forced on us in this world, cars and clothes and vacation destinations and the newest phone and the fastest computer and the trendiest shoes, whatever these things might be. We look at these things and they glitter and we go, ooh, I got to have one of those. My life would be so much better if I had one of those. But if I give all the money that I'm going to give to the church, I won't be able to get one of those. After all, what do they do with the money I give to them at the church? I don't see any benefit in that. I don't see any value from that. How do I know it's being used for good? You know, I think this one time I'm going to treat myself. I'm not going to give my offering in the church, and I'm going to buy that shiny gadget. Well, that happens once, and it can happen twice. And before you know it, you're thinking, well, you know, there's all this good stuff I have in my life because I'm not giving to the church. The church seems to be doing okay. I think that's a good plan. Surely God is happy with my 2.5%. I'm happy with it, right? Well, if this materialistic mentality wasn't true, careful now, if this materialistic mentality wasn't true and we were super committed to giving to the Lord the very best that we could, you and I, I included, I and we together would look for ways that we could cut our expenses so that we could give more to the work of his kingdom. Think about this. If we had 30 people who gave an additional $20 a week to the ministries of the church, $20 a week, 30 people, that would amount to over $30,000 in a year. Wow, $30,000, that's a lot. So instead of eating out every Friday night, let's eat out only some of the Friday nights. Let's give that money to the church. There's all kinds of ways that I and you, we, can change our spending habits so that we can fund the kingdom's work in a way that is pleasing to God. I wonder what we would be willing to give if our salvation was dependent upon how much we gave. (laughs) What do you think? 
God, I gave you every penny I could scrape together, and I'm going to sell some stuff because I want to give you more. Please, God, save me. I'm giving you as much as I can. I'd like to give more. I just don't have it. I've given you $10,000 this year. I've given you a million dollars over my lifetime. Doesn't that buy my salvation? Isn't that enough? Well, we can't buy the love of God. We can't buy the favor of God. But because he's given to us what we don't deserve and what we can't earn, the privilege of investing in his kingdom work, which, by the way, lasts for eternity, ought to be a glad and welcomed exercise in our lives. When the offering plate is passed or when we put in the electronic check amount, we should say, God, I'm so thankful I can give this to you. Convict my heart that I find a way to give you more. When the early church was filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, these new believers were willing to give away what they had to meet the needs of the growing church. Here's the point that really drives this home for me. It's this. All that we have, everything we have, comes from the Lord. It is really not ours. It is His. And He has appointed us to be managers or stewards over what he's given to us. We simply give back to him what already belongs to him out of our love for him, out of our thanks to him, out of our worship of him. And I'll tell you, if, if you give grudgingly, don't give. Don't give. Well, number three, last point on our outline. We see the fellowship of worship. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And so this fellowship of worship is the idea of regular corporate worship. Continuing day by day. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It says they went to the temple every day, not only to learn, but to witness to other believers. And we'll see this later in the book of Acts. They fellowshiped in homes by sharing meals together, and they did it joyfully. They went to the temple every day to offer up the prescribed Jewish prayers They went there to hear the apostles' teaching. They went there to tell others about what God was doing, and they did it joyfully. You know, it's interesting to me that there are people who will drag themselves to the golf course. But, you know, today I just don't feel like going to church. Your body's just not, you know, everything's hurting, and I think I'd do pretty well to stay home today. My body needs a rest. They look out the window and they say, wow, there's some rain falling out there. Gosh, that's going to get pretty wet, that you know, 30-second walk from the parking lot, from the car to the door. But uh, they'll go and golf in that weather because, hey, I got a poncho. I can stay dry and golf out there for hours on end. There are people who will go to work and to other leisure activities, but they won't go to church under the exact same circumstances. Why? Because it isn't a priority. It isn't a commitment. 
While our lives are very, very different from first century Judaism, where they had to go to the temple every day to offer up the prescribed prayers, they did it. They shared meals house to house with one another. Again, the idea of breaking bread and communing together spiritually. We should be just as consistent as our schedule and as our ability is to make worship a priority and to become here with a sense of joy because we are privileged to enter in God's house to worship him, to fellowship with other believers, and to hopefully be challenged through the teaching of God's word. We see the external impact of this fellowship of worship in verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. So they went through the temple continually, day by day, praising God. God, I got to go to the church again. It's time to go pray. Man, I'd rather do something else. There's a good show on right now. Having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, we, we look at what takes place in the book of Acts, and most especially Acts chapter 2, and yeah, there are some unique things that happen there that probably aren't going to happen in our world today. The, the signs and the wonders, they were given to the apostles as a way of authenticating their message in the same way that Jesus came and performed the miracles that he performed. Doesn't mean that God doesn't do miracles. Doesn't mean that God doesn't allow others to be the instruments of his working a miracle in someone's life. But it's by far the exception than it is the norm. In the book of Acts, it seems to be the norm. But the point is this. When the church of Christ gathers together, and shares a fellowship of growing in Christ, a fellowship of celebrating biblical worship, of biblical fellowship, amazing things happen in the midst. And what happens in these walls then goes out into the community where we would say, man, church was so amazing last week. This is what happened, and this is what God said, and this is what God did, and so-and-so got saved, and this person confessed their sin publicly before the church. Man, revival's breaking out in my church. Do you think the world is interested in hearing something like that? Do you think people who are dead in their sin and know that this life is empty and meaningless and there's got to be something more, you think people who are longing for a meaningful connection want to hear those kinds of stories? I promise you they do. They're not walking around saying, hey, you got anything good to share with me? You got anything? But they're going to listen when you talk and when you can authenticate in your life what God is doing and it connects with something in their life that they need, they will want to know where you're getting this experience with God at. But we can't manufacture that. We can't put a formula together to create that. It is an organic, it's an authentic expression of our spiritual journey with the Lord. The more unified we are in our relationship together, spiritually, the more united we are in mission and purpose, the more I believe we will experience this wonder-working power of God in our midst. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I believe with all my heart that you desire to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, your Holy Spirit which indwells us. 
And Father, we just need to acknowledge that we are absolutely and completely dependent upon you for any good thing to be accomplished through your church. I pray that you would drill deep into our hearts the necessity of our vibrant relationship with you and how that carries over into the vibrancy of this experience of worship together that we have in our fellowship, in our discipleship, in our relationships together, and most especially in our worship of you. God, I pray pray that you would do a work of revival in each and every heart, that we would be brought back to the days of our salvation when we were just amazed that you would save a wretch like me. God, I pray that as we contemplate this great gift that you've given to us, this great God that you are, that our hearts would just be compelled to praise you, to give to you what you are deserving of and entitled of, and that is the very depth of love expressed through worship and praise, not just in the songs we sing, but in the lives we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name.